Hey guys, Montel here, and thanks so much for tuning in to this edition of Let's Be Blunt with Montel. And I'm so excited to have my guest on today. My guest is an industry leader in the cannabis space. She's also, you know, an advisor to and a thought leader who is focusing her skill set to help black, indigenous, and people of color and women led businesses in the cannabis sector. Social equity has become this almost cliche term for many, but not for this powerhouse. She's was named one of the 10 women to watch out of in uh, 2021 and one of the 35 most influential influential women in the cannabis industry in 2020. Christine De La Rosa, thanks so much for being a part of Let's Be Blunt with Montel today. Thank you. Great to be here. Absolutely. Before we uh, even get started, I want to I want to find out a lot where you're from and know a little bit about your background. You were at MJ Biz last week, right? I sure was. And how did you like it? It was awesome. Um, I was really excited to see a lot of BIPOC people there. The last time I went, of course, which is what everybody went, was in 2019. And there were a handful of us um, in the crowd. And this year we really represented, which made me really excited, meaning that we used the pandemic to increase our numbers in the cannabis space. And that's awesome. Absolutely. But now let's talk a little bit about MJ Biz itself. Because I, I literally was, was it, it was again, I, one of the things that, that's thrown me a little bit about the industry is that after so many years, we are still so B2B focused and not as much B2C focused as I think we should be. And a B2C for, when I say B2C, I'm talking about business to consumer, but I'm also talking about business to collaboration focus. You know, we have been, you know, focused so much. Everybody's trying to, to etch out their little fiefdom and fiefdom and the cannabis space, not working together as much as we really should be to move this entire industry forward. What did you feel about this year's convention? I mean, this year was definitely uh, B2B. So like, I didn't see a lot of B2C stuff happening. I think that's probably because it's so hard to do CPG in the way that we are now without federal legalization, since you can't transfer um, THC across state lines. You really, It's really hard to create a brand unless you do a lot of licensing agreements in the different states. And those are costly. I mean, you don't have the same profit margin that you have if you were able to ship your cannabis products from, let's say, California or Oregon to New York. And so I think that that's why they stay B2B focused at this point. But I really feel like once federal legalization happens, you're going to see a lot of B2C um, conferences more than you will now. You know, I find it interesting, though, but I think like this industry is 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 going to waste time and not be prepared for if, in fact, some sort of federal movement is happening. And let's throw on that issue. I mean, give me give me a crystal ball. What do you think uh, the Fed's going to move on this? Remember, you know, this current administration is led by a person who still claims that cannabis is a gateway drug. And, you know, his deputy is a person who made sure that they incarcerated more people of for nonviolent cannabis offenses and people of color than any of our predecessors. So, we don't have really a good, strong administration in place, or would we have one if, you know, the other party took place right now? So, you know, from a crystal ball perspective, what do you think the Fed's going to make some move? It's going to, I think it's going to require this business, this industry to do more B2C cooperation, collaboration to get a single message to Washington, D.C. that we're not messing around. We need you to step up to the plate and understand that laws need to change. But until this industry gets out of 
you know, being worried about his own pocket, I don't think we're going to get that kind of collaboration. Yeah, I hear you. I think that that's a very true statement. I think that, I mean, if I had a crystal ball um, in the best circumstance ever, I think we're looking at 2023 or 2024. But I think you're correct in saying that it has to be led by the consumer. The consumer has to want to have medicine in their state and they're going to want to have the best medicine in their state. And part of doing that is making sure that the federal legalization regulation that comes out of the legalization is beneficial to the consumer, not just to the brand or to the company that's cultivating. So I agree with you and, on that. And we got to educate the consumer. I mean, that's part of the problem, I think, with this industry right now. I believe this now, and I believe this, and I, I feel even stronger about it coming out of the the, uh, of the pandemic. I mean, you know, we had every state that had a medical program declare cannabis as an essential business, keeping them open. Um, but then, you know, the industry didn't do a good enough job going out and telling the consumer, hey, we're here. We have a product for you. You know, I mean, you take a look at how did the pharmaceutical industry become as powerful as it has? It's not because the pharmaceutical industry cooperates between, you know, big pharma, though they've had a big pharma, you know, organization in existence for years now. But it's not as if they collaborate together, they share information. No, they spend most of their time, and that's the reason why we turn on your television right now, every other ad that's on TV is for some sort of pharmaceutical product. Why? Because they educate the public to get the public to go into the doctor's office and say, have you heard about such and such? And of course, the doctor has right there behind his desk. Oh, yeah, I even have some samples of that for you. Try this. And then next thing you know, that boom, now all of a sudden, you know, that particular product or a product like that is, you know, blows up across the country. How the hell do we think we got the, the opioid crisis that we had in America? It's because the pharmaceutical industry shoved them down your throat through advertising, though I'm not saying we should mimic the way that they marketed opioids, but they shoved them down your throat through commercials and through advertising so that people would run into the doctor's office and believe that they were getting a product that was good for them. And then that forced the doctor to, you know, prescribe it. And then next thing you know, it blows up. That's every single drug that's for sale in America. Now I get it. We don't have the ability to advertise the same way uh, when it comes to cannabis, but we do have the ability to educate the same way. And, I kind of feel like that's part of where this industry is missing the boat. We're not taking advantage of the chances to go out and educate the masses. Yeah. I mean, I, I don't think that we have the same opportunities to advertise like you stated, but also even to educate. If we look at two years ago during the Super Bowl when Med Men put their very expensive educational commercial together and bought the space on the Super Bowl time, they still rejected it. So it's really hard to educate. And like we try to do that via you know, media, social media, Instagram, TikTok. And many times our any kind of outreach we do, even if it's just educational, we're not selling anything, we're not advocating for anything, we're just telling you this is a, the medicinal properties of this plant, we will oftentimes get banned. So being able to get the word out is really, really difficult because it really has to be almost hand-to-hand, one-to-one. If we had the opportunity to have educational um, you know, commercials like the pharmaceutical companies had or would be able to be left alone on the social media platforms, I think we could get much further along. But really, at every point where we could get critical mass, we're hindered by this federal 
um, problem. We're not hindered with face to face. That's true. Never That's anywhere. True. And the industry doesn't spend any money face to face with the community. I mean, there's no, okay, so they, they shut us out of uh, the radio. They shut us out of TV. Okay, well, then let's start sending flyers out in every single neighborhood and saying this coming Friday night, if you want to know something about, you know, cannabis, then join me at uh, such and such a ballroom at your local Hilton. And, you know, we have coffee, tea, and crumpets. You know what I mean? Come on out. And you'd be shocked at the number of people who would show up because they want to understand that there's a viable alternative for them out there. That's how uh, the yoga industry has uh, blossomed the way it has. That's how, you know, almost any holistic uh, community in this country has blossomed. It's by face-to-face, personal touch, education. And I think this industry is is sorely, sorely lacking in you know, innovative ways to do a personal touch. If that's all that's left to you, then take advantage of what's left. But we don't want to seem to do that. I don't understand that. But, you know, hopefully, you know, but put your crystal ball on. What do you think is the uh, looking, we're looking, you, you said 2023, 2024, we're still talking about the same administration that promised the first 100 days they would do something. And now we're, what, 200 days in and they are 150 days in and they've done nothing and even given any indication of doing anything. I mean, I don't think this administration even understands that, you know, the, the right the right push for cannabis right now could change those opinion polls of an administration overnight, I think. I think that's true. Absolutely. But I think what will be a difference, and I think that this is the thing that we're really pushing for as an industry, is the Safe Banking Act over the MORE Act and over the CAOA. Um, because the Safe Banking Act would give us access to institutional money. Right. You know what, what drives governments is money. And yeah. so once the institutional money comes into the into the legal marijuana, they'll have to move pretty fast to get federal descheduling or legalization, however they're going to want to do it, push pretty quickly. And that, I think, is what really moves things. Gotcha. Well, let's back up a little bit and tell people a little bit about your background. I mean, let's start. Where, where did you grow up? I grew up in San Antonio, Texas. Ah, Texas, a state that's been pretty much anti-cannabis all along. So um, how is cannabis perceived in your family, in your hometown? Well, I, my cannabis in my family is perceived really well now. Um, it wasn't when I first started. I moved to California, and that's how I got into the cannabis business. And um, when I came home to tell my mother that I was going to go into the cannabis business, she literally said, why are you always shaming the family? Um, and now they're very much, you know, once you teach people, um, and the reason that she had that reaction is because of all the propaganda that's been fed to um, people of color communities, right? For Mexicans, it's, I remember when I left for college, my mom's like, don't smoke marijuana. They're going to think you're a lazy Mexican. Um, and so we have a lot of stigma in our communities around um, an ancestral medicine that we can use for healing. Um, takes me right back to the same thing we were just saying earlier. It was that face-to-face, personal touch, face-to-face with your mother that made her understand yeah. this is a viable medication, correct? Yep. And that's how it's been my, my entire cannabis career. It is one-to-one. Um, a lot of people that I talk to, I have lupus, and that's how I got to cannabis. Um, I almost died. I had a pulmonary embolism because of lupus, and the doctors put me on five opioids. I had access to any of these opioids at any time, plus six other medications that were like gabapentin, Lyrica. I had to go to the hospital once a month and I wasn't getting any better. So I actually transitioned from a lupus regimen of synthetic medication to cannabis. And that's how I got into the cannabis industry because I thought, wow, 
there's been this flower, this plant, this holistic medicine available for me to me for five years. And for five years, I was on opioids and, you know, all of these pain blocking medications that didn't make me do any better. And that's when I decided that I couldn't go back to being a database architect, which is what I did in a previous life. But I actually had to help other people find the medicine. And it is that one to one, especially in communities of color who have that stigma. You know, it's a huge stigma. Um, yeah, pause for a second and tell me about your first experience with cannabis yourself. I mean, you start, tell me about that. When something obviously a light bulb went off when you first tried it, but, but when and why? Oh, the very first time I tried cannabis was actually in Texas when I was 16. And if you know, as you said, Texas has a very difficult relationship with cannabis. And so it's called skunkweed here. It's like really terrible. So that was actually my first experience, which is why I was like, oh, yeah, no problem. I don't ever have to do that again. But when I got sick and I started to look for an alternative medicine, I went to this a dispensary in Oakland, California, where I live, and I bought a bunch of different stuff. Like I didn't know what I was doing. I took, I got, you know, tinctures and, you know, smokables and vapes and edibles. And what I basically did the very first time that I started to actually, you know, use this for medicine is I just started taking everything to see what worked. Um, so my very first um, experience with medical cannabis was sitting at my dining room table with a bunch of different products and just trying them. And what I noticed right away was that the pain that I experienced constantly immediately was gone. And then I had to figure out what that, what, what happened? Was it the edible? Was it the smokable? Was it the vape? Um, and eventually I found a regimen that works for me. And then you didn't look back. I didn't look back. I got off all 11 medications within nine months and have been in lupus remission for the last six years. Wow, that's really interesting. I guess a lot of people who, you know, are suffering from your same malady could have. Have you written a book about this? I haven't written a book, but I talk a lot. I'm a speaker, so I speak a lot about it. I speak a lot to other um, chronically ill people um, because so many. One of the reasons I didn't go back into database architect was that when I was really sick, I belonged to all sorts of groups: lupus support groups, chronic illness groups, and all. Most of those people are black and brown people, right? Who are taking these synthetic medications, and so what really drove me was to make sure that they understood that there was a medicine that we had been stigmatized out of using. Um, and what was happening at, the, at that moment was that there was a bunch of companies, corporate companies that were making tons of money, even though we were being told and we were being incarcerated for using the same products. So that was really important to me. And so that is what I do. I talk a lot to people who are ill. I help them figure out their own regimen. Everybody's different. So my regimen is not your regimen. But how do you figure that out? How do you learn what works for your body and your particular ailment, whether it's a physical ailment or depression or anxiety? It's just, it's such, an, it's such a magical plant. And we need to stop thinking of it as a terrible thing. What was the career? What was your career when you got out of college? What did you think you were going to do? I thought I was going to be a photographer. I got a Bachelor of Fine Arts, and then I thought I was going to be a professor, got a Master's of Humanities, and then I ended up being a database architect. So nothing wow. that I went to school with, <laughs> much it. to my parents' chagrin. And then, you know, then because of your own personal search for wellness, you went to California. First you tried it, then what made you say, hmm, I think I'm going to get into this industry to see if I can help others more? What, what was the reason? There was nobody that looked like us that was currently in the industry. Most of the industries that were, at least in California, were run by white folks. And so we opened up a dispensary in downtown Oakland under a measure called Z-Measure 
which means we didn't have to get licensed by the state. We just, we ended up being a collective. And that's how I started. I started a collective thinking that I would service about a hundred people that I personally knew who were chronically ill. And within the first six months, we had 4,500 members. Wow. All of them were uh, POC, LGBTQ, um, elderly veterans. And I thought to myself, why are they not going to the eight medical dispensaries that surround us that literally have more products than we do? And the thing that I noticed was that they felt comfortable in our dispensary because we were all people of color or LGBTQ or older or chronically ill. They, they recognized us. And that was what really was a catalyst for me because I'm like, we're watching this rapid, like even this year, this rapid growth of mergers and acquisitions among all of these corporate companies. And there's not a lot of representation of us. And we are the legacy market. We built the market in the underground was by black and brown people. We gave our lives for that. And yet we're not going to participate in the legal market. That doesn't seem right. It doesn't even seem like it would be successful, which we see it's not being successful now that, you know, three times more money is made in the legacy market than is made in the legal market. Yeah, it's it really is interesting that, you know, I mean, even it, it, to today, you know, the legal market doesn't understand, you know, the importance of having participation by people in the legacy market in their businesses. They're still trying to figure out ways to skirt it, get around it, hide it. You, you usually, I'm sorry, say that again. Or incarcerated. They're still trying to figure out a way to get that prison pipeline, even though it's legal. Right. Absolutely. And in several states, they're still, even in the states where it's legal, they're still pressing hard on arrest and incarceration. Yep. And which was interesting, last week I saw the New York Cannabis Commission um, came out to verify that if you are selling um, cannabis or you're doing an event, you still can't serve cannabis or you're going to be, you're going to have a huge fine. And what do we, and the, and the way they hide that, they're like, well, we're going to do this huge fine, but we're not putting you in jail. The fact is, is that the fine is the first way to get us into jail. The fact that you're in a legalized state and you're saying, if you have cannabis at your event, we're going to fine you. It's ridiculous to me, <laughs> to be honest. And I thought that the New York law and saying that's, that's so, so it's so confusing about all, every, all these individual states. Mm -hmm. I thought the New York law included consumption. It did, but only if you're licensed. So if I do an event today in New York, I could be fined for doing that event. If you had cannabis, cannabis being consumed at your event. Yeah, I could be fined. Or if I was giving a gift, which is how this is how the legacy market happened, right? I'm going to give you a gift, Montel. I'm going to give you this set of cufflinks and you're going to buy that cufflink from me. And as a gift, I'm going to give you the cannabis, right? That was a way that we have always skirted stuff. So if you do that in New York, that's also findable. And most of the people that are doing that in New York and most of the people that are operating currently in New York are the legacy operators because the nine or eight or nine MSOs that currently exist there only until recently got to have flour. So where would you get flour in, in, in New York for the last, you know, 80 years, you have to go to somebody who's working in the legacy market. So there's a mm -hmm. lot of tips and tricks in which they're trying to trip us up. We just have to be vigilant. Yeah, it's, it seems, it seems really uh, crazy. I understand there was going to be the opportunity for consumption locations where you could literally either have a bar but you know a situation where people could come and consume is that not right going on in new york right now you have to apply for a license and they haven't released those licenses yet so while they're waiting to to get the regulations so they can do the licensing 
if you try to do any event that there's cannabis at, they're going to find you. So yes, they're going to have consumption, but it's going to be like a year or two down the road. What are people to do until then? Yeah, it's really ridiculous the the entire attitude. I, I I'm I'm at a loss, at a loss in some ways in trying to figure out where we are headed. As much as it seems like you know, right now we have what 57 states in the District of Columbia that have some form of medical cannabis law. At the same time. You know, some of those states, you have uh, legislators who are trying to you know, reverse the will of the public by banning this or banning that and putting in unnecessary administrative steps to slow down or stop it. And, and as if they really, they're doing that, but then at the same time, making sure that they get as much tax dollars as they can get. And trying right. to tax them, you know, it's, yeah. it's ridiculous, right? Yeah, it is. I agree with you. We recently launched the People's Group, which is a $50 million fund. Why don't you tell me a little bit about that? Well, sure. I'm so excited to do so. Um, so one of the things, I'm an operator, and I've been operating um, since 2016. And one of the hardest things to do um, is to find capital, right? So if you're a person of color or if you're a woman, it's very difficult to find capital. In fact, Crunchbase put out something last year that said um, of all of the VC money, venture capital money that was available, only 2.6% went to people of color. And of that, only like 1.9% went to women. And so what we see in the cannabis industry is so many amazing BIPOC and women-led companies that are really looking for funding to be able to fund their business, either at a seed stage or at a growth stage. Um, but there's not a lot of capital available to them because VCs just don't fund BIPOC and women. So I decided to do what I wish had had to happen for me and raise a cap, raise a fund where we could invest in BIPOC and women. Um, and that's what we did. And I was very, very lucky to have a great set of advisors. I had never done a fund before. Um, and they were able to help me. We had the idea in November. We incorporated by March of this year and we deployed our first capital in September. So um, that's why, because we need access to money. We need access to funds and we are going to be successful. But the way to not make sure that we're not successful is not to give us any money to grow our businesses. And you you have a, I guess, one of your um, goals is to make sure that all this money is deployed by what, 2023? That's correct. So do you have a lot of people, I, I'm sure right this minute, you know, you just sparked the interest of everybody who's tuned in to Let's Be Blah, Montel. So give them a place that they can go to right now to see if they can apply or get more information. Where would they go? They would go to the People's Group dot fund f-u-n-d um to get more information about the fund to contact us um last year i spent most of last year during the pandemic running the company but also mentoring about 20 other companies that will be coming through the fund as well and we are about to launch our accelerator in january so people are applying for that right now and if you're a founder and currently have a cannabis business you can also apply um via the website for funding Wow. Now, we talk a lot about social equity on this show, and there are a lot of programs out there um, attempting to address this issue, but what, what do you see as some of the major hurdles in achieving social equity in the cannabis industry? Well, I think, first of all, we have to stop calling it social equity because it doesn't exist. Social equity does not exist in any state currently. It's been an abject failure. And what has ended up happening has been co-opted um, the term. I think the idea in the beginning was very, very smart in 2016, but Five years later, you can't point to a city or a state that has successful social equity. 
And what they've done is they've used social equity to create a Hunger Games for people of color, where we're all fighting. They're putting us in lotteries as if we don't have the ability to actually apply for a license. And what is so scary, I think, to, for me personally, is that we keep falling for it. We keep falling for social equity as a legal term, as a way to be, when it's just not working. You know who has the most social equity right now is one of the racist states, in my opinion, um, having lived in Texas, is Oklahoma. Oklahoma has a low barrier to entry. That's what we need as people of color, a low barrier to entry. I have people that have licenses in Los Angeles that they won two years ago and they haven't been able to realize the profitability of that license. They're all Salvadorian. They moved to Oklahoma City, one of the whitest states. They've opened up their dispensary for $2,500 plus what it costs to build out the place they're renting. And they're making about $250,000 to $300,000 a week. And they still haven't been able to get their license from L.A. So when you're looking at social equity, what you're looking at, and this is where we should really be talking about this, what is the lowest barrier to entry for people of color? That is social equity. The stuff that they're doing right now is not social equity. They are really playing us. And while we're over here begging for scraps, trying to get a license and then getting the license and being unable to get it funded, so I'm holding the golden ticket that I can't actually realize its profitability. The larger companies are buying each other up, creating larger market cap. And we're over here still waiting for a lottery. It's, it's disgusting. And in my opinion, it is the reharming of our people and our culture. And I think that's uh, that's pretty much how it is in almost every other state in the union, other than Oklahoma. I mean, you know, the 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 barriers to entry are so daunting that it makes it almost impossible for anybody who's a, you know, a a legacy player or a person who's just a person of color trying to get in the industry, you know, having access to any kind of capital has been tough. I mean, has it improved in the last few years? No, it hasn't. Um, it's not only daunting, though, it is also unacceptable. And we have to stop, as as people who are part of that social equity world, we have to stop saying that it's okay to continue to, to use us in this manner. So no, the finance, I'm hoping that we will be able to spark that so that in the future it will be better. But as an operator, I can tell you, it's very difficult to get capital from the people that you would normally get capital from because the way legacy operators work and the way people of color work, what we measure as valuable is not what a VC model values, even though they should be valuing it because it is the cannabis culture, the culture that we bring to the table as Latinos, as black people, as indigenous people, as Asian people to that table that makes it exciting that makes it a very profitable marketplace. And as long as they keep ignoring us and pushing for enforcement rather than for integration, they're going to keep losing. But that's what they're doing right now. The big companies are really pressuring the state governments to enforce because they think if they enforce, they can crush the legacy market so that they can get that larger market cap. But what do we know about any industry that's underground? They usually continue to be underground until they're brought into the picture. And this is really what we're trying to do is make sure that legacy operators can join into the legal market so that we can actually work together. But a lot of those people in the legacy market are BIPOC people. And But, but I mean, when we take a look at the nation as a whole, I mean, we're looking, we're living in a time right now where, you know, divisiveness is the rule of the day. You know, you know, you you sit in an interesting situation. You are a person of color, but also a female. I mean, you I know, am. as a woman, 
Um, this industry has, has seen, you know, lots of barriers for women. Have you, have you think, is it getting any better? Is it getting any easier? It's really interesting. Um, I think for my company, it's getting really interesting. Most of my leadership is women. Um, they just did, again, I can't remember, I think it was MJ Biz Daily just put out something two weeks ago that the level of leadership in the C-suite has dropped in the cannabis industry. Um, I'm not really the sure. level of what, female leadership? Female leadership, yeah. So mm-hmm. C-suite level female leadership has dropped. Um, last year. Do they give an indication as to why? I don't know if they give an indication as to why. I just saw it in a passing moment, but I thought that's real because a lot of times um, the people that when they, when companies, the large corporate companies hire female people, they don't actually hire them. They hire them in like HR or marketing, but they don't actually hire them to manage the P&L. And what we do know, I did a paper on this last year for the NCIA on the National Cannabis Industry Association is that women, companies that are led by women have a seven to 10% increased profit margin than companies that are led by men. That's a, that's a stat. It's real. Um, so why wouldn't you put women in positions to manage the profit and loss? You do that when you don't put them in those, put them in those positions and you put them in like HR marketing, it's performative gender equity as a, as opposed to financial equity. And so think that, that that's just something that happens because we're in the system that we are around systemic patriarchy. That's just what it, that's just what it is. I think that a lot of women figured out, Hey, I'm really not molding the industry. Why am I here? If I'm not helping to build the industry that I'm so excited about. And I think a lot of them left and are now creating their own companies. So we don't have that data yet, but I think that a lot of a lot of them that I know that left those companies are now creating their own companies. But those that are creating their own companies are doing are in the, the catch twenty two. They've got to find capital. Hi, huh? <laughs> hi. I hope I can do that. I'm really hoping because like this fund for me is just the first fund, and it's a, a first fund. I'm hoping to open up many other funds so that we can fund as many viable. BIPOC and women-led companies in the cannabis space and the ancillary cannabis space, because I think that that's how we have a diverse, inclusive, and very profitable um, cannabis industry. That's probably one of the things you most like, you would most like to see change in this industry, right? That's right. Mm -hmm. And and what other projects are you working on? Um, What other projects? Well, for the operator side of me, we just came out with 57 new SKUs of products that are going to be going into the California and Oregon market this year. And then we're working with licenses, uh, license agreements in other states. So that's super exciting. Um, we're working on the accelerator um, where we're going to be doing one-on-one accelerator classes with founders that we think could get to our fund and be able to get some capital from our fund. If they don't fit our investment thesis, we're putting them together with other funds. Um, so that's so super exciting. And I think one of the most exciting things um, that has that I'm really in, in, interested in is a company called Tetragram, um, where they're doing an app uh, that works with your medical history. One of the things that, as you were saying, like right now, I can tell you, hey, you have anxiety, you need to use an indica. But there's a million indicas. How do you know which one works for you? And we don't even know if those terms are even legitimate anymore. Indica sativa, because there's everything yeah. that we consume in this in the United States is a hybrid of some sort. That's correct. There aren't, I don't believe, any true indicas or sativas left in the marketplace. There's something right. more sativa-like and indica-like, but 
to say those terms are really just like saying, you know, I don't know, uh, yellow and blue. It doesn't matter. You know what I mean? But go ahead. I'm sorry. I was just going to say Tetragram actually is an app that tracks individual patients. And so you can be like, I'm having severe depression. And I used Blue Dream and it made me more anxious than feeling better. But when I used this other strain, I felt good. So that you can track the strains that you you personally can use for your medical health. It's something yeah, like you know, but, but, but something like that I, I think would be great if in fact we had true strains, but we don't have true strains anymore. What used to be Blue Dream, one of my favorite that was one of my favorite what I thought was a strain or cultivar blue dream and also Girl Scout cookie, but that, that blue dream that was a blue dream 10 years ago isn't the blue dream of today. Um, it isn't the blue dream from state to state. It isn't the blue dream from city to city, you know, depending who and who grew it and how they grew it and what they crossed it with and how they tried to cross it. You know, it, it's, I don't know, blue dream 22, blue dream 65, you know? Um, so I'm not, Arguing in a sense that, yes, that technology would work well if, in fact, we could literally identify what a strain is. But I'm not sure if the industry right now has the ability to do that any longer. Do you? Um, I think that they're going to have to do that. I think at some point they're going to have to say this, this is what Blue Dream is. I don't think it is happening right now. I agree with you. But I do think that having an app like this starting now when we're able to say it's a blue dream in California is the same blue dream in New York is the same blue dream in Texas, that that will make a big difference. And so I'm excited about applications that are helping us determine the cannabis for our health, mental and physical health. As somebody- so I, would, I would love it if that same app were to say, not necessarily, is it the same, but this is what the blue dream California has. This is what the blue dream Texas has. This is what the Blue Dream New York has. I mean, may as well. We got to try to figure out how to. That's a great idea. I'm going to tell the founder, this is a great idea for Montel, uh, right. because that is a great idea. <laughs> you know, yeah, I mean, that, yeah. I've, I've looked at, you know, again, I'm, I'm, I've been in the business also and trying to move my brands forward. You know, um, you know, most of my brands have been based on Blue Dream Girl Scout cookie, but that was a Blue Dream Girl Scout cookie that I found in Northern California, which is definitely different from a Blue Dream Girl Scout cookie found in New that's Jersey. Yeah, it's not the true. same. And though those properties of the Blue Dream in New Jersey, the the everything from the you know the terpenes to the you know um, the flavonoids are all different. They're slightly off. They're different. So and that slight difference is what's going to be have so, a resulting effect. I think it's going to be so important as we move um, from recreational into the medical, which is weird, right? We started in medical, we went to recreational, and I believe we'll go back to medical because people like me need to have an assurance that if I take this thing, it's the same thing every time. It has to be like aspirin, right? But, you take an aspirin. But even, even with that thought in mind, I think that what we don't understand and with the industry, again, going back to a B2C, business to consumer model, you know, the business needs to start to recognize that what we thought was recreational use isn't recreational or adult use. Every bit, if a person chooses cannabis over alcohol, there's a medical reason why they did so, even if they don't admit to the medical reason themselves. I do it because I want to relax. Well, relaxing is a medical reason. I do it because I want to sleep better. That's a medical reason. So this whole idea of we got recreational use here and and medical use over here, I think we need to stop that silly and just talk about cannabis use because 
I think anybody who chooses cannabis over alcohol or over any other form of euphoric and uh, inducing chemical is doing so for some underlying medical reason that they may not even admit themselves. And it could just be the fact that their endocannabinoid system is out of balance. We know that for a fact. That's the reason why we know there are certain what we consider chronic illness that has been more prevalent since the banning of cannabinoids in 1937 to date. Some of that is because of deficiencies in our own endocannabinoid system. We already recognize that there is anandamide deficiencies that could have some bearing on all the spectrum disorders. Um, We understand that there is you know, 2-AG deficiency that could have bearing on all of what we consider chronic illness from MS to lupus to you name it. So until we as an industry stop letting outside forces define who we are and define ourselves, I think we're going to be having more and more problems in the same way. I agree with you. I think you're right. You know, I think when you look overseas and you look outside of the United States, I think the approach in several other countries is trying to look at this the way it should have been looked at from day one, and that it is a plant-based medicine. That's right. Well, when we look at plant-based medicines, what do we do? We take the plant apart, finding those things that are you know, beneficial, finding those things that are currently detrimental and try to remove the detrimental and enhance the beneficial. Well, you know, I think other countries are going to beat us to the punch when it comes to this in taking the the plan. I mean, right now we're all back and we should be, we're back to the idea of having this broad spectrum or full spectrum approach. But I think, don't know if the industry even understands what they're saying when they say that. You know, we want a full spectrum approach. So what does that mean? That means we want an all natural extraction of the plant cannabinoids, the 200. And again, depending on who you read, is there 160 or are there 260 cannabinoids? You know, if you're in Canada, there's 265. If you're in, you know, United States, there's less than 160. You know, I'm just blown away that there's so much greed in this industry trying to, again, control my fiefdom rather than control what it is I'm selling. Yep. You know, if we did a, you know, it's, it's, it's long been past due that the research gets done and not, you know, just because we want to spend billions and billions of dollars on research, but the research gets done so we can find out some information. Right. Pharma is doing that. You know, they are right now behind our backs taking plants apart, trying to put them back together again the way they have always done. And, you know, given another three or four years, next thing you know, it'll be a big pharma. You know, I don't know, it'll be some Pfizer or somebody like that that's going to jump out. Pfizer in particular, who's been doing research on the fact that they know that there are certain flavonoids that have a greater anti-inflammatory effect than some of the analgesics that are available in the marketplace today. Yeah, they're going to pull those flavonoids out and start selling that back to us like they do right now with, you know, some of the for sale 
trash that's out there that at seventeen hundred bucks, thirteen hundred bucks a month. Come on now, this is a weed that grows in, grows by itself. We don't need to be charging that much for the little bit of research you did to identify something that works better than say Tylenol. However, we're going to allow that industry to do that to us before we get smart enough to recognize, oh, that's something we should have done ten years ago. Hell yeah. No, I agree. I mean, I think one of the biggest barriers for research has been that federal legalization where it's not um, legal to do the research, right? Like you only right now that I think there's only one place that's federally legal to do maybe two now. There's Mississippi and they're giving grants around the country. However, you know, it is legal to do research on cannabinoids outside of the United States the same way the federal government funded research in Israel, funded Mm -hmm. research in Spain. You know, there's corporations that should be funding, can be funding research right now in South America and China and all over the world. Research is being done. So, you know, to sit back and wait for the United States to bless it, I think that's kind of been ignorant. And, you know, there are enough companies that made enough money last year that, you know, they could pass on buying a new Lamborghini and put a little bit of money into research. And, you know, we could probably move this whole initiative forward by 20 years if we did that. But, you know, everybody wants their new Lamborghini. I don't have a Lamborghini. <laughs> no, no. <laughs> I'm just teasing. <laughs> but I see that. I mean, we saw that kind of excess at the beginning of, you know, where people were buying, you know, homes in the Hollywood Hills and they had, you know, all of this wealth around and they were using investors money to do that. And I think you are correct in that, in that this is the time for serious work. And that means that take some of your market cap and actually help figure out what is what we need to do. Do the research and don't wait. But, you know, I don't have that kind of ability to tell MSOs what to do um, and they're not doing it. So, yeah, I, I find it. I, I just think that that's kind of just honestly the first business that decides, OK, we all are living pretty good. You know, we're all paying ourselves fairly decent salaries. We're making enough money now. We're making, you know, X amount. Now let's pour all that money into some research and a project in Israel. Do the same thing the federal government did in the 70s and 80s. You know, our U.S. government funded research in Israel. That's how Dr. Mishulam became the, the, you know, the godfather of cannabis because he received so many grants from the United States doing research. Well, let's start funding that research again and funding it in a way even if we just decided, let's go after just one thing, anti-inflammatory response, boom. You know what I mean? And does it have to be, do you have to spend billions? No, you don't. And I, I know that that's a fact. You do not. You know, we can do some studies that are are double-blinded and studies that people would be happy to be involved in um, outside of the United States that uh, could at least identify one, two, three uses of this plant that are peer reviewed, validated. Once that's done, more and more money will go into research. That's true. Mm-hmm. I'm highly for research, of course, because as somebody with a chronic illness, I would like to know exactly what I need to take to do this thing or to do that thing. And there's so many people with chronic illnesses all around the world that if we could just do one or two things, it would be better than what we have now, which is nothing. Absolutely. So now what do you like most about the industry? Um, I like the flower, actually. It's very exciting um, to watch it being grown. We've head out, we've visited some of our cultivation sites. Um, 
uh, for people that are doing manufacturing for us, I think the actual business of it around providing medicine for people is what excites me the most. Because I'll tell you the story back in the day, I had an older gentleman, African-American came into the store and he was just coming to buy, you know, his regular every week eighth. Um, and, but when he came in, his hands were kind of like this. And I, I, I knew he had arthritis and he's, and I said, have you ever tried using a rub, a THC rub on your hands? He's like, no, I've never done that. He's like, I'm just here to pick up my, you know, my eighth. And I was like, I'm going to give you this rub. It was a THC rub that at that time was owned by Whoopi Goldberg. And I said, try this at night, put it on your hands, you know, put some socks over your hands so that you don't get your bed sheets all greasy. See me when you come back, tell me how it worked. A couple of weeks pass, the same guy comes up to the dispensary. But when he comes up to the dispensary, we were up a little bit of stairs. He came up doing this. He was giving me jazz mm. hands. And he's like, I never knew that this could be, that, that I could not, I could have this kind of movement in my hands. He's like, I still have arthritis, but it's not as bad. And that to me has always been my motivation is when I see somebody who's suffering, like I was suffering for five years, I didn't work for five years. I couldn't walk for five years. I couldn't function because they had me on opioids, right? When I am able to change one person's life where they don't have to take a hydrocordone, a hydromorphine, an oxycontin, and they can transition it to an actual plant-based medicine, that is my motivation. Because I was there for five years. It was the worst five years of my life. It were, they were my five highest earning years, and I could not function. And that is the worst part, is to live half a life while living half a life. So that is really my biggest motivation. Wow, it's incredible. So again, if people want to get a hold of you or call you up to see if they can get you to come and speak for them, where do they go? They go to thepeoplesgroup.fund, F-U-N-D. Okay, and that's how they can get more information about possibly applying for to see if they can get a grant from your fund. And it's a $50 million fund that you intend to deploy all of that fund by the end of 2023? Yes. And is there, uh, there's just, hey, you know, maybe is there something in particular you're looking for to fund? Sure. I'm looking to fund either people that have licenses but haven't been able to realize the potential profitability of those licenses because they haven't been able to get funding. And I'm looking for existing companies that are doing a great job um, with their licenses, but they need growth capital that they're unable to get so that they can actually bust out of the out of the mold. So those are the two types of companies that I'm looking for um, in terms of funding, because we get them at the early stage that we can help them create the company that they want, or we get them where they've already created the company, but they're doing so well, but they need a little extra push to kind of go over the, over the top. So those are the two companies that I'm looking for. Christine De La Rosa, I thank you so much for being a part of Let's Be Blunt with Montel today. You always have a home here whenever you want to come back. Uh, I love chopping it up with you. There's so much more we could be talking about. Sure. Thank you so much. Absolutely. You have a great day. You stay well, stay healthy. And I want everybody out there to know that, you know, again, one more time, hit them where they can go. The People's Group dot fund, F-U-N-D. And I'm so happy that you've decided to do what you're doing to help those who are in need help those who are in need the way you are. So thank you so much for being a part of our show today. Make sure you tune in to the next edition of Let's Be Blunt with Montel. Thanks for joining me on Let's Be Blunt with Montel. Please make sure you're subscribed and hit the bell to be notified when new episodes post each week. We'd love to hear your feedback also, so please send us your comments. Uh, uh.